Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. ...and participating with us because we are on, on mission to just keep growing together. Last Sunday, we had a special opportunity as we were growing together to hear a message from my friend Jerry Neal, and I want to thank those of you who were here for giving my friend such a warm heritage welcome. He shared an inspiring message with us about God's plan for impacting your community, the network of people around you, through your peaceful and selfless behavior. And I know I was inspired by the vision that he cast for how we can bring hope into hopeless places. But today we are renewing and returning to the series that we started at the beginning of March, where we are talking about the meaning of Jesus's death on the cross. Now you've already heard in service today, and you probably already knew that this is the beginning of what Christians call Holy Week. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday when we commemorate the resurrection of Jesus together, which means that in the days leading up to that celebration, between now and then, we are commemorating the death of Jesus. And we talk about this death all the time in church. We mention it in every service. We mention it in so many of our songs, but the actual meaning of Jesus' death can be a little bit complicated. I don't know if you know this or not, but Christians throughout history have recognized that the death of Jesus is critical to our faith, that it's a pivotal event in history, but understanding exactly how all of that works in the spiritual realm has been confusing. The people who recorded the written accounts of Jesus' life, they dedicated 25, 30% of their writing to just talking about the final few days and hours of Jesus's life. But since then, the other writers of scripture, Paul and Peter, James, and the the Christians who have been thinking about this and writing about this for the last 2,000 years, they've been using a variety of different metaphors to try to describe what happened spiritually when Jesus gave his life. And it turns out that there's not just one single explanation that can encapsulate all of the meaning of what happened on the cross. It turns out that there's not just one single explanation that can explain all of what was going on in the spiritual realm when Jesus gave his life, because this event, this pivotal moment in history has got multiple features and components that make it both miraculous and mysterious at the exact same time. And so during this series, we've been talking about how we can look at this from different angles. We've used the illustration of a diamond, thinking about how you can analyze the different facets of a diamond and you can study the crucifixion and you can discover a range of meanings. As you study through the scriptures, you will find passages that explain Jesus's death like the payment 
of a ransom. Even Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's straight out of the mouth of Jesus. And then there are other passages that describe Jesus' death as the climax, the final battle in a cosmic war between good and evil. In fact, for the last number of weeks in our series so far, we've already, ex- we've already experienced how Jesus lived and died in order to experience complete solidarity with humans, even to the point of death. And we've also studied about how Jesus died as a ritual sacrifice on our behalf. And I know that out of a crowd this size, there are probably a fraction of us who find all of those distinctions and those little differences fascinating. There are a few of you who are totally interested in these theories and these metaphors and these philosophical discussions about the best way to describe what we've called the atonement or what it took to make us at one, atone at one with God. But I know not everybody resonates with this. For some of us, this sounds like a really abstract, intellectual, academic kind of conversation and all of that's true. For some of us, this sounds like the kind of conversation that would be best left to the professional theologians and the professionals, the teachers and the preachers. But I want to tell you that there's one important reason why I wanted to dedicate time this spring to distilling some of this information into a sermon series. And and really, we're giving you just kind of the, the highlights here. But I wanna tell you the really important reason why no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, no matter what your occupation, no matter what your biblical, biblical literacy, no matter your interest, there's one reason that I wanted to hit on some of the high points in this conversation for you, and it's this. I'm convinced that your understanding of what happened on the cross shapes your understanding of God. Your understanding of what was going on behind the scenes on a spiritual cosmic level, your understanding of what was happening on the cross shapes your understanding of God. And it's so critically important that your understanding of God is on a trajectory toward becoming more and more accurate more and more healthy. You see, your spiritual journey is your lifelong quest to try to understand God just a little bit better all the time. And I believe that the crucifixion, is, it, it's right at the foundational level. It's foundational to your understanding. And the reality is that you can build your spiritual life on a foundation about God that's not accurate. You can have misunderstandings about the crucifixion that can lead to some critical misunderstandings about the character of God. And you can sabotage your spiritual life by believing false notions about what happened at the cross. I want to try to explain it to you in a way that maybe feels a little bit more tangible. I want you to imagine for yourself a set of golf clubs a bag of clubs that you would carry out onto the course. Some of you are golfers and some of you aren't, I know, but most golfers carry 14 clubs in their golf bag and each of those clubs is understandably a little bit different. 
Usually the clubs have different lengths. Some of them are longer and some of them are shorter than the others. And the club heads are all set at different angles. Some of the clubs, you may know this, have a large head and they're called woods. And some of these clubs have a smaller head and they're called irons. And each one of the clubs is designed to hit the ball a different distance and at a different angle. And then there's the putter. And the putter's just used to make the ball roll across the green and toward the hole. And if you were to ask any golfer in here, what's your favorite golf club in your bag? They might have an answer for you. They might have a club that they feel most confident with, that they feel like they have the most success with. But the reason that, there's a reason that golfers don't play the entire round with just their favorite club, right? I mean, you could try it, it's been done, but there's a reason that golfers, even if they have a favorite club, they carry 14 clubs with them in the bag. And the reason for that is because each club has a different purpose and a different strength, right? This makes sense. On any given hole, a golfer might use four or five, or if you're like me, seven or eight clubs, you know, on one hole. Because the deal is, golfers have to be constantly assessing the course. And they have to be looking out for all of the various hazards that exist, all of the hazards and the traps and the issues that might come into play. Because every golfer knows that if you hit your ball into the water or you hit your ball into the sand or you hit your ball into the woods or you hit your ball into the tall grass, and I've seen all of those places, if you hit your ball in those places, it can really ruin your chances of finishing the hole with the score that you wanted. And in a similar way, there are some hazards that we have to try to avoid when we're reflecting and talking and studying on how the atonement works. There are some pitfalls along the way. There are some issues that we need to be mindful of. For centuries, Christians played the atonement game basically relying on just one club, the ransom metaphor. And it's a beautiful metaphor. And in this metaphor, Jesus gives his life to buy humanity back, to purchase humanity back from Satan. And this metaphor has verses that I've mentioned to support it. And if we t but the thing is, if we take this metaphor too far, it ends up take, putting us in the hazard of assigning too much authority and power to Satan. People in the 10th and 11th centuries, a thousand years ago, people started saying, wait, that doesn't exactly make complete sense because there's no way that Satan could have so much power over God that Satan would just be able to tell God what his price was. And that minimizes God's power. And so a thousand years ago, Christians started reaching for a different club in the bag. And, they st and, and there's a, a club in the bag that we've talked about in this series, the solidarity metaphor. And in that metaphor, Jesus identifies completely, comes and experiences the full range of emotions and life moments that humans go through, even to the point of the hard stuff, the difficult, painful stuff, experiencing suffering and shame and death. And Jesus serves as an example. We can't deny this. I mean, this is a beautiful metaphor. Jesus serves as an example for humans of how we can live into our design. But this metaphor has some hazards, too. 
this metaphor has some problems because it doesn't seem to recognize the severity of sin. It just seems to indicate that Jesus was just kind of showing us the way. And so if we follow this metaphor too far, we can wind up in another hazard because we just relied on that one club. And so today I want to point our attention toward another club in the bag. Another metaphor that can help us understand what Jesus' death accomplished for us. Today, we're exploring the concept of substitution. The idea that Jesus died in our place so that we don't have to die. And chances are, if you've been around church for very long, if you've been around church in North America, if you've grown up in contexts, anything like this, this is a concept that you're familiar with. This idea that Jesus died in our place, in our stead, on our behalf, instead of us. This may be the theme that you're most comfortable with. It may be the theme about atonement that rings the most true to your mind and heart, that makes the most sense for you. It may be the one that resonates best. But for all of those reasons, it's that much more important that we learn the hazards that this metaphor, this theme is susceptible to. This is one of the areas where we can get ourselves in trouble because we feel too comfortable. This is one of the areas where we can start to get some ideas about God that don't really reflect the true nature of God. So if you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you this morning to join me in the New Testament book of Romans. It's the sixth book in the New Testament portion of your Bible, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 5. As you make your way there, I want, to, I want to turn your attention to this because you're going to see some of the most extensive example and teaching about this substitution theme of atonement. You need to know that Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, the same person that cities like St. Paul, Minnesota and Sao Paulo, Brazil were named after. St. Paul, Apostle Paul, he's probably the most educated of all of Jesus's apostles. He was a scholar, a scholar of what we call the Old Testament, what they knew as the Hebrew Bible or their scriptures or the law or the Torah. He was a scholar whose expertise in the Old Testament allowed him to see how Jesus was fulfilling the promises that had been made to Israel by God. So Romans chapter 5 through 8, four chapters. These chapters deal extensively with this substitution theme that Jesus died in our place. And we don't, we're not going to set aside enough time today to read four entire chapters and unpack them all together. But I have picked out a couple of key passages to give us some insight into what Paul is trying to describe here. And the first passage I want you to see is in Romans chapter 5, and it begins in verse 6. We pick up at a spot where Paul has been writing for the last couple of paragraphs about the generosity of God. And he's talking about how God gives the gift of righteousness, not to people who have earned it, but to people who have just been willing to receive it by faith. 
He's saying this righteousness that is possible for you, it's not something you can earn. It's not something you can purchase. It's not something you can do to make it happen for yourself. It's just something you can accept through the gift of faith. And then Paul goes on to express our story this way. And the first verse we're going to read is a verse that for many of you is near and dear to your heart. It's one of the verses that helped you put your faith in Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Your translation may say, at just the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, those who were not behaving like God intended, those who were not behaving like the image of God within them. And this is a beautiful statement. I mean, uh, this is one of those that if you spend much time in Romans and if you spend much time in church and if you spend much time with God, you're gonna end up committing this verse to memory because it just stands out as one of the most beautiful explanations of what's happening in God's plan here. It's this beautiful statement about Jesus's love. While we were still powerless, your translation might say. This verse speaks to the desperation of the situation that we found ourselves in apart from Jesus. It says, we were in a predicament that we could not escape on our own. And Jesus showed up to save the day. I mean, this is good news, right? This is what we're here to celebrate. This is the reason that we gather. This is the reason for our hope, that in the moment when we were hopeless, hope arrived in the form of Jesus the Christ. But maybe the most shocking part is that Jesus, this verse says, Jesus did that for us when we had not done anything to deserve it, anything even to request it, that Jesus did this for us when we were in opposition, when we were standing as enemies of God's plan. I believe Paul was writing this statement with an awareness of some of the mythology, some of the Greek and Roman mythology that would have told stories of sacrificial deaths where somebody had offered themselves on behalf of somebody else. There were beautiful narratives that had been made up in those Greek and Roman mythology stories. And in some of those stories, somebody gave their own life. But as you can imagine, it only happened for somebody that they loved. It only happened for somebody that they were already connected to. It happened for a, a dear friend. It happened for a spouse. In those ancient stories, if somebody gave up their life for somebody else, there had to be some strong connection there already. Verse 7, though, says this situation is different. Paul says, now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Most people wouldn't even be willing to give their lives away for somebody who was a good person. I mean, they'd pray for them, you know, but trade places with them? That's a big ask. 
Paul says most people would not be willing to do that. Most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps, perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. And you're hearing this language of it being deserved, right? You're hearing the language that says, if somebody in their right mind was going to give up their life for somebody else, then surely that somebody else would be, have to be somebody that really had done something good, right? Somebody that really deserved the intervention, really deserved the sacrifice, really deserved the grace. That's just normal. That's, that's typical human thinking, Paul says. But... Verse eight, and I can tell you, just about any time in scripture you see the words, but God, buckle up because you're about to read something really, really good. Paul says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. When? After we deserved it? No. While we were still sinners. And I want you to pay such close attention to this verse. Because this verse, buried in, in this verse, is a little helpful phrase that can help us avoid one of the hazards that can go along with this substitution theme. I want you to notice in verse 8, Paul recognizes Jesus as a symbol of God's great love for us humans. Okay, don't miss this. I've highlighted it here for you. Paul recognizes that Jesus comes on the scene, arrives in the flesh, lives his life, teaches, preaches, heals, executes his entire ministry, and then offers himself on the cross as a symbol of God's great love for humanity. And this is critically important. Because sometimes people who study this substitution metaphor, sometimes people who read through Romans chapter 5 through 8, start to get the idea that Jesus came to protect us from God. Sometimes people who read through these passages start to get the idea that Jesus' death happened because God was so mad that he had to hurt somebody and that Jesus just said, okay, let it be me. Sometimes people read these passages and they get an idea about the character of God that looks very vindictive, very angry, short-tempered, and mean. And I need you to know I need you to know that it's possible to read through these passages and to read into this substitution metaphor and start getting the idea in your head that Jesus saved you from God. It's even, it's even been suggested that God killed Jesus just to satisfy his anger. And you got to think about what that says about the character of God. You got to ask yourself what that means about who God is. And you can, you can, uh, uh, answers have been given, have been suggested, 
to all of these objections. People will say, well, the holiness of God just demands that he can't possibly be in the presence of sin. And then here comes Jesus. And what's Jesus do? Hang out constantly in the presence of sin, right? This is Jesus, this is what he does. Hangs out constantly in the presence of sin. What do you mean God can't do that? These explanations, these suggestions that God is so angry at humans that he just needs to break something, these suggestions seem to forget the core Christian conviction we hold that Jesus is God. Jesus and the Father are one. We can't dismantle the Trinity just to try to explain atonement. We can't do away with the core teachings of Scripture in order to fill in the gaps that the writers of Scripture didn't feel compelled to fill in for us. Instead, Instead, we have to stretch our imaginations to conceive of this idea that Jesus Christ on the cross is God on the cross. We have to stretch our imaginations to be able to believe that the judge has been judged in our place. And we have to look at the entire atonement question through that lens especially when we start to come across references to the wrath and the condemnation of God, like we're going to find in the very next verse. Look with me, Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Paul says, And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Your translation may say God's wrath. Verse 10, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son. You see where some of these images come up, right? You see how it's easy to make a plain reading of that text and start to get the idea that in order for God to like us again, somebody had to be killed you see where that idea comes from. But you can also see how we have to meld that. We have to mesh that with the other parts of Scripture and the things that we know about God. We have to figure out how these work together. So verse 10, I'm sorry I cut off there. It says, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. And in these verses, this is where you start to see these references to God's condemnation, God's wrath. And that sounds threatening. It sounds intimidating. It sounds scary. In fact, reading about God's wrath makes it easy to slip back into that thinking that was so easy for us, so natural for us to assume that God is angry with us. Earlier in this series, I told you the story of the night of my own baptism and how at 15 years old, somebody who had grown up in church and had grown up hearing teaching and preaching from passages just like this one, 
I had a picture of God at age 15 that told me that God's default posture toward me was anger. And that it was within my purview, it was under my control to try to take the steps necessary to make God stop being angry with me. Oh, how thankful I am to have learned better since then, to have learned more about the love of God that was demonstrated for me in Christ, to have come to a better understanding about the character of God. And I need to help you get there. I want to, I want to ask you to pay close attention to the order of the words and to the verb tense that Paul chose in verse 9. First, I want you to notice that he says, since we have been made right. What's the tense there? It's past, right? This is something that has already occurred. Something that has already happened. He says, since we have been made right, since we are already experiencing this status, this position, he's describing something that has already happened. And then, after reminding us of the righteous status that God has provided for us. And what did, what did he say in Romans chapter 4? I summarized it for you at the beginning. He says that the status of righteousness doesn't come through anything you can do to earn it, right? It doesn't come through anything you can pay. The status of righteousness comes by faith. It's credit, God credits us with righteousness simply as a response to our faith in God's promises. And so after reminding us in verse 10, verse nine, verse nine, after reminding us about the righteous status that God has provided for us, then Paul reminds us of a promise that God's been making for centuries. A promise that God has been making since early on in the time of the Old Testament, and it's the promise that one day God will finally set everything in creation back to how it should be. That one day, all of the parts of this world that make you cry, God's going to deal with those. One day, all of the parts of this world that break your heart, and there's a long list, right? that God's not blind to those things. God's gonna deal with those problems. God's gonna deal with those issues. He's been promising this for centuries. He's been promising the great day of the Lord when the entire creation that's just been aching for this restoration would finally experience healing. One day, God will finally set everything in the creation back to how it should be by condemning everything that's not as it should be. One day, God's judgment will rid the world of everything that threatens God's eternal plan. God will, because of his promise and in his goodness and righteousness, God will levy a judgment of condemnation against the powers and the forces and the diseases that have plagued human civilization. 
God will, because of his promises and his goodness, God will pass judgment on systems of oppression and hostility. God will pass judgment on empires that try to build for themselves at the expense of others. God will pour out his wrath on the institution and the idea of human violence. God will pass judgment on division between his creatures. God will rid the world of slavery. God will rid the world of poverty. God will rid the world of racism and sexism. God will rid the world of grief. God will pass judgment on the things that, because you are made in the image of God, also break your heart. God has a plan to fix what's broken in this world so that the people of God can find eternal rest with nothing to fear. It will happen. There will be a day when God condemns everything that stands in opposition to God's plan for eternity and God's design for the world. But God's plan to judge the world is nothing more than a manifestation of his love. Do you understand that? If you care about God, and if you care about the things that God cares about, then sometimes don't you feel it in your heart that you think, boy, I wish God would come and clean this up. If you've experienced loss, if, you're go, if you've experienced grief, don't you sometimes think to yourself, it's got to get better than this. If life has put you through the ringer and spat you out, don't you think, don't you think that a loving God wants something better for you? God's plan to judge the world, ultimately, to restore the world to its original design to create a new heavens and a new earth where the people of God can experience true love and true life without fear. God's plan to judge the world for those purposes is simply a manifestation of his love. It's a promise that's rooted in his goodness, not in his anger. It's a promise that's rooted in his love for us and not in his disappointment. God loves the world so much that he's been carrying out a plan to restore the world, to restore us. And we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid because God's rescue plan has made it possible for us to be in fellowship with him, in communion with him. And Jesus' death on the cross opened the way for us to receive the love that God always had for us. It's opened the way for us to receive the love 
that we had turned our backs on. And when we look at Jesus on the cross and come to realize that in that ugly disfigurement, in that gruesome picture, we are seeing the most clear image of what God is like that we could possibly see. When we come to that realization, then we can understand that even the wrath of God is for us. Even the wrath of God is for our blessing, for our benefit, because he loves us. And so Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, there's a lot more content, a lot more depth here that we could share, a lot more meaning that it would be great to dive into. But I want to encourage you with these words from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, where Paul says, at the end of this long argument he's been making for all these chapters, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Maybe that's the verse that you need scribbled on your mirror at the house, right? Because this one is one of those verses that when you're in a good place, it sounds beautiful, and when you're in a dark place, it is really hard to believe this could possibly be true. But Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. We could camp out there for a long time and I could talk to you about how what you actually needed to be freed from was not being freed from the wrath or the anger of God. What you needed to be freed from was sin with a capital S, the big pervasive sin problem in our world that holds us captive, that makes us slaves to it. We could talk about that for a long time, but Paul says the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from that power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses, all the attempts that you made at righteousness, they were unable to save because of the weakness of our sinful nature. And so God did what the law could not do. Does this sound like somebody angry? No. God did what the law could not do. He sent his son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us. This was not God's way of saying, I hate y'all so much. This was God's way of saying, I hate what's happened to you. I hate what you've been through. I hate what you're trapped in. And I'll go to any length to bring you back. In that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead we follow the Spirit. I wanted to read all four of those verses to you, but I want to go back as we wrap up. I want to go back and just highlight one sentence that was found in verse 3. God declared an end to sin's control 
over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. It reminds you a little bit of that famous verse, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son, he sent his son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but could have eternal, everlasting life. It's, it's like Paul was just reading John and just, you know, putting it in his own words. But I love it because he says, there is no condemnation. There's no reason to be afraid. There's nothing to be, be afraid of. There's nothing to be dreading if you're in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which begs the question about us, about whether we are people who are in Christ. And every single one of us comes to that question from a different spot, from a different experience, at a different position in our spiritual journey. And there are some of us in the room who are thinking, I have never been in Christ. I've never made a commitment. I've never made a decision. I've never accepted the invitation to be in Christ. And I want to tell you, you couldn't have picked a better day than today. You couldn't pick a better day than today to start that journey and say, I want to be in Christ. I want to know what it's like to know that there's no condemnation for me. Couldn't have picked a better day for that. But I also want to speak to those of you who made that decision a long time ago. Because your spiritual journey is the continuing quest, the lifelong quest of coming to a better knowledge, a better appreciation, a better love, and a better understanding of God, of becoming more and more and more in Christ as you grow. And so let us not be people who just settle for a simple understanding of the atonement. Let us not just be people who settle for a cursory reading because the truth is that some of those cursory readings can confuse our notions of the character of God and we can build a spiritual house on a foundation that will not stand. But if our foundation is built on the knowledge that God has always loved, that God is always love and that God will always love. If our foundation is built on that premise and if we build our house on that foundation, then we'll build a house. Then we'll build a house. It's got room for God in it. It's got room for God's people. I want that for you. Easter is next week, and we're going to come together, and we're going to talk about the outcomes and the, the aftermath 
of all of this atonement talk. And there is no crucifixion that means anything to us without the resurrection. But there is no resurrection without the crucifixion. There is no raising from the dead if Jesus doesn't first offer his life. And he did it for you. Jesus died with us. Jesus died for us. Jesus died instead of us. There's so many different facets to this conversation and so many different explanations and reasons why Jesus died. But at the core of all of it is this message that says Jesus died because of love for you. And I want, it for, I want the story to be your story. 